Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them for best to worst, usually. But once a month, we do a horror-adjacent bonus episode chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Um, I'm okay. We're getting into that part of winter, I think, where... Uh, my brain starts playing mean tricks on me. It doesn't help that uh, we've kind of hit a cold front. Yeah. And it snowed again and it was like yes. seven to ten inches. Like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I could be doing better, but like from an objective standpoint, I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> How are you? I am stressed out at work. Hmm. What else is new? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am actually very excited for this movie. Because I've been wanting to see this movie for a very long time. You want to tell our audience what we were watching? Yeah, so our horror-adjacent bonus episode for January, as voted on by our patrons, is Death Becomes Her from 1992, directed by Robert Zemeckis. So have you ever seen this movie before, Sarah? No. Okay, neither have I. Fantastic. I've seen bits and pieces of this movie. Because it was one of those movies that seemed like it was always on TBS Superstation. Mm. Like one of those, this is a 90s crowd pleaser that nevertheless isn't that expensive to get the rights for. So it's going to be like one of our like 10 movies that we show over and over again. Sure. My main consumption of this movie has been through gifts. Got it. That (laughs) makes a lot of sense. When I was growing up and this movie was on TV... Something about it just, like, never appealed to me. Like, it would be like, oh, Death Becomes Her's on TV. And I would, like, take one look at the movie for, like, 30 seconds and be like, nah, this ain't this ain't for me, bro. Why do you think that is? I don't know. It just, like, I think was in this, like, particular horror comedy vibe that, like, I've never been interested in. Um, Even to this day? Well... We'll see, like, what I think of it now. Sure. Right? Because I'm a lot more, like, willing to give things that don't seem to appeal to me, like, a try. Witches of Eastwick is another movie that, like, falls under this category. Hocus Pocus, like, falls into this oh, category. yeah. There's, like, a certain, like, like vintage of, like, n- early 90s horror comedy that, like, I bounce off of. Which is strange because, like, there's other stuff from that period that sort of falls into that bucket that i do like like um army of darkness or like the adams family movies well here's the thing the movies that you kind of bounced off of are very female focused that's true so you would have been like what a teen when yeah. these be shown on tbs superstation like there are other things serving your interest yeah for sure a movie about like middle-aged women and their fears of growing old just like not super appealing to, you know, yeah, a 14 year old boy for sure. So yeah, this will be really interesting if it's the first time either of us have seen it. Mm-hmm. The reason why I've been wanting to see it for a while is because I think because of its use or rather people's use of gifts of this movie, it has almost this cult status in my head, even though obviously it was very successful financially and critically. But like the other reason is 
the use of the gifts and the way people talk about the movie is very much like uh used in like queer culture yes this is a a big cult film for the queer community specifically for um drag performers yeah i have suspicions as to why Mm. that that it's not textual at all it's how people attach themselves on to uh female villains in particular but we can talk about that in the discussion Mm. we have a lot to get through absolutely we do uh because this is a what it essentially is, is it's a B-movie that was made by A-picture people. Mm-hmm. So the story of Death Becomes Her begins with a young Robert Zemeckis. Uh, he was born in 1952 in Chicago, uh, and he described his childhood as being, like, devoid of art. Like, his family, like, didn't, like, no paintings didn't go to the theater, like doesn't listen to music, um, doesn't go to movies. Like he grew up enthralled by TV. That was like the one sort of like media in the house. Like his parents weren't readers, you know? So he, he grew up enthralled by television and he started making his own movies using his family's eight millimeter home movie camera. You know, the kinds of like stop motion kind of like whatever things that, you know, the stuff that like I made as a kid growing up with a camcorder. (laughs) Um, television was basically his one escape from his blue collar upbringing. It was like his one exposure to kind of like what the wider world looked like outside of blue collar Chicago. And after seeing Bonnie and Clyde in 1967 and learning that film schools existed when they got mentioned on an episode of the tonight show, he asked his parents if he could go to film school. They felt that this was like an unrealistic dream. Uh, what they told him was like people from here don't become movie directors. Um, I guess John Hughes hasn't come to the scene yet, right? Mm. That's like the 80s. Yeah, and so like what they said to him was, you know, don't do this because like it's not going to work out and you'll be unhappy. Uh, so Zemeckis decided to go to film school anyway to spite them. He got experience cutting film for NBC News Chicago and also edited like local commercials. And then he went to uh, the University of Southern California's film school, which is the same film school that like George Lucas and John Milius um, and uh, those guys went to. And he started attending USC film school in 1969, where he became friends with Bob Gale. And the two men kind of gravitated to one another because they weren't interested in like making intellectual art films like they went to film school and it's like we don't care about the french new wave man like um (laughs) they wanted to make like commercial hollywood pictures they wanted to make like john wayne movies and and stuff like that because that's what they had grown up on which made them sort of unique at the time in 1972 zemeckis saw the film tales from the crypt uh a british anthology picture adapting like the old 1950s ec comics uh horror comic and that movie became kind of like an immediate favorite for him so after graduating in 1973 zemeckis and gail wrote the horror exploitation script bordello of blood uh, which was a very like tales from the crypt style story that was designed to kind of break them into the industry because it's like you know that's how you break in right with your like indie exploitation horror movie nobody wanted to make Bordello of Blood. The script was not bought by anybody. Uh, Instead, Steven Spielberg discovered Zemeckis through his student film, A Field of Honor, which won a Student Academy Award and was noteworthy because it has like 
police car chases and like a riot and like is kind of like a an action movie which was really abnormal for student films so Spielberg kind of decided to be Zemeckis's like mentor and executive produced his first two films I Want to Hold Your Hand in 1978 and Used Cars in 1980 both of which bombed uh, critically well received commercially not similarly Spielberg's 1941, which came out in 1979, also bombed, and Zemeckis and Gale wrote the script for that. Mm. They gained kind of a reputation in Hollywood for writing scripts that, like, read great, where you're like, this will make a good movie, and then that audiences, like, did not want to go see. So things were things were going bad for Zemeckis and Gale. They wrote the screenplay for this time travel movie about a kid who goes back to the 50s and then his mom wants to fuck him called Back to the Future. And that was promptly turned down by every major studio. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible movie. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So then Zemeckis got involved in developing a science fiction film about old people at a retirement home called Cocoon. Mm -hmm. Um, And as he was developing that, Michael Douglas hired him to direct his like adventure film, Romancing the Stone, which starred him and Kathleen Turner. If you've never seen Romancing the Stone, um, it's sort of like if Indiana Jones was set in like the modern day and the focus was on like the romance plot. It's very like old school Hollywood kind of in that way. Romancing the Stone scored so poorly at test screenings that Zemeckis was fired from Cocoon. Uh, which was directed by Ron Howard. And then Romancing the Stone came out in 1984, and it made $115 million on a $10 million budget. Wow. So suddenly, Zemeckis had the clout to make Back to the Future. He and Bob Gale do Back to the Future with Spielberg producing, and uh, it's a huge hit. Uh, Back to the Future grossed $388 million in 1985. So then its sequels... In 1989 and 1990, made 332 million and 245 million dollars, respectively. Now, here's a quick tangent Mm. because if you look at what happens just on paper Mm -hmm. in Back to the Future, not even counting the sequels, but just Back to the Future, you're like, how is this a successful movie? And what makes it successful are its stars. Yes. This is why casting directors deserve clout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The cast for Back to the Future makes that movie. Sorry for the tangent. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no problem. The other thing that's really abnormal about the Back to the Future trilogy of movies is like, it's one of the few examples I can think of where it's a movie series where like Zemeckis directed all three, like him and Bob Gale wrote all three. It's the same cinematographer, the same editor, the same like score, the same actors for the most part. There's a couple of notable problems just squint it's fine but for the most part like it's the same crew for all three films um which i think really helps that trilogy feel like it's on purpose uh, <laughs> and not just the cash in um in 1988 zemeckis directed who framed roger rabbit for touchstone pictures and that was another smash hit it grossed 351 million dollars and it won four academy awards thanks to its groundbreaking mix of 2d animation by richard williams and live action photography so zemeckis is suddenly like on top of the world like in a five-year stretch 
1989, he became one of the executive producers for HBO's Tales from the Crypt TV series, which ran from 1989 to 1996. Zemeckis directed three episodes, one in season one, one in season three, and one in season six. That must have been so fun for him. Absolutely. So Zemeckis began to conceive of the idea of doing a feature-length episode of Tales from the Crypt. And he engaged the services of uh, two writers, Martin Donovan and David Kep. Uh, they were the co-writers of a 1989 sort of like psychological political thriller film called Apartment Zero. Um, and Donovan had actually directed Apartment Zero. Um, and it was like a cult film. It's like still kind of like a weird British cult film. Um, so he, he got Donovan and Kep to write a screenplay for this. Now, David Kep would go on after this to write films like Jurassic Park, Carlito's Way, The Shadow, The Lost World Jurassic Park, Panic Room, Spider-Man, War of the Worlds, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like, he goes on to be a big deal. Yeah. Eventually, at some point during development during pre-production it was decided to produce the film like separate from the tales from the crypt franchise so you know this isn't officially a tales from the crypt movie um that said uh there were three movie spin-offs for tales from the crypt produced after this okay the second of which from 1996 was tales from the crypt bordello of blood oh he finally got to do it yeah yeah uh, so yeah, so they got this script together for this like movie. So like when you're looking at this movie, you should really be looking at it through the lens of this is a Tales from the Crypt movie, even if it doesn't say it on the title. Okay. Um, they used the Tales from the Crypt theme music by Danny Elfman in the trailer. Oh. Um, and the tone of it is very much that kind of like, horror camp ironic twist ending all the characters are shitbags who deserve it kind of tales from the crypt ec comics formula yeah how popular was tales from the crypt though it was really popular yeah okay that's because that's what surprised me about using the music in the mm, trailer but mm. okay cool yeah and yeah you were talking about casting and how that's important um this movie had an all-star cast as far as i know there was only like one major hiccup in the casting for this film which includes just so many movie stars so many so many movie stars but i'm going to really focus in on three mm -hmm. slash four okay i'm uh, curious who who ranks for number four i think when i say who it is you'll be like oh yeah sure sure so i'll start with meryl streep who plays madeline ashton uh she is like, we have three main characters, my understanding, at least, for mm -hmm. this movie. But Madeline is kind of, like, the main. Um, also, Meryl Streep's name appears first on the poster. So yes. I use that as my guide. Yeah, for sure. Now, Meryl Streep is a big fucking deal. <laughs> she was born in 1949 in New Jersey. And did you know that at age 12, she started doing opera? No. Yeah, she took... I did not know that. <laughs> she took opera lessons for four years. And then quit because she was like, this isn't where my passion is. Okay. My passion lies in theater. Mm. She performed in high school plays, uh, but really didn't like get seen as like a notable talent with a ton of praise until uh, this play in college in 1969 called Miss Julie. With that praise, it 
carried her off to get her MFA at the Yale School of Drama, where she was taught by many notable people, but particularly Robert Lewis, who is the co-founder of the Actors Studio in New York City. And she graduated in 1975 at age 26. And she headed off to New York to do several productions in that year alone, several productions like on the stage, um, including Trelawney of the Wells, which uh, also starred Mandy Patinkin and John Lithgow. When she saw the movie Taxi Driver starring Robert De Niro, she was like, I want to be like that. I want to be an actor like Robert De Niro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so she tried to get her way into film. Uh, she auditioned for Dino De Laurentiis's King Kong in 1976. Oh, she didn't get the Jessica Lange part. Okay. Um, well, so she came to audition and De Laurentiis in Italian turned to his casting agent and said in Italian, this is rough. Why you bring me this? <laughs> referring to Meryl Streep. Now, Meryl Streep, who was studying opera uh, for four years, sure. understood Italian and replied, this is me. I'm sorry I'm not more beautiful. But with me, what you see is what you get. She did not get the part. Yeah. <laughs> Her first feature film would be opposite Jane Fonda, though she had a smaller role. Uh, it was in 1977's Julia. That is so weird. Why is that weird? Her first play was Miss Julie. Her yeah. first film is Julia. And then way, way, way later, he, she plays Julia Child in the movie Julie and Julia. Yes. That's super fucking weird. <laughs> it's just coincidence. I know, that. but it's still fucking weird. Um, so that was her very first feature film. But she skyrocketed it to fame the following year in 1978's The Deer Hunter. Mm. Now, The Deer Hunter won Best Picture. She received a nomination for Best Supporting Actress from the Academy. And the following year, she starred in Kramer vs. Kramer, which also won Best Picture. She won Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards and the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. And what I think is really interesting is, so that's like her second movie. And she went to the writer to ask to rewrite some dialogue because it just, it felt too villainous for, for mm. a woman mm. to like be saying these things. Kramer versus Kramer is about basically a custody battle. Yeah. Um, and so they let her rewrite it and then she earns these awards and it's best picture. Mm -hmm. But she has that confidence behind her. Yeah, for sure. Now, she, or rather her acting, is frequently described as having a, a sense of mystery behind her acting, um, some kind of like unease below a surface of normal behavior. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of description that kept coming up in reviews of her work that I saw. Now, her first lead film role came in 1981's The French Lieutenant's Woman, which was like very notable. And what was interesting with the reviews around this film is people were describing Streep as a chameleon. Yes. So rather than actors in her cohort who would try to carve out like a particular persona or genre, Streep is just going like one film type to another and just morphs and, and fits it really well. Yeah, it's the difference, not to be reductive, but like it's the difference between a movie star and an actress, right? Because it's like you can do the movie star thing where it's like, you know, if you're hiring Sean Connery, you're hiring Sean Connery, right? Or you do the actor thing where like, you know, it's Daniel Day-Lewis and he's different every, every time, time, right? Because he's like playing a part. 
Uh, her next big film role would be 1982's Sophie's Choice, mm-hmm. where she won an Academy Award for Best Actress. Roger Ebert described her performance as, quote, one of the most astonishing and yet one of the most unaffected and natural performances I can imagine, end quote. Now, this run of success reached its height with 1985's Out of Africa, which won Best Picture that year. And, you know, she was starting to be able to ask for $4 million a picture. (laughs) That's fucking amazing. Go Meryl Streep. Now, the films that followed 1985 were less successful, but Streep's performance was always a standout in reviews, um, particularly in like 1988's Evil Angels, 1989's She-Devil. And for the most part, she's doing dramas. She is a chameleon. She's, you know, changing genres a little bit. But for the most part, they're serious roles. In the 90s, she turned to comedies. She kind of stuck her foot out with a comedy drama or what I like to call a dramedy uh, with 1990s Postcards from the Edge. Right. Um, and actually, that started a, a very long friendship with Carrie Fisher. She's actually uh, Billy Lord's uh, godmother. Oh, that's which is cool. Really cool. Is Meryl Streep playing the Debbie Reynolds character? No, she's playing Carrie Fisher. She's playing the Carrie Fisher character. Okay. Yeah, not not actually Carrie Fisher, but yeah. actually Carrie Fisher. Yeah. In 1991, she was in Defending Your Life, a comedy fantasy. And then in 1992, uh, she starred in this black comedy, Death Becomes Her. Mm-hmm. Now, because of the themes of this movie about getting older, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, one of our uh, characters is an actress who's concerned about getting older. In 1992, Meryl Streep was 43, mm-hmm. and she had already had four kids. Wow. The character that she plays is over 50. Okay. Just as a, as a little note. That's good to know. During the production of Death Becomes Her, uh, she reportedly went to writer David Kep. Uh, asking to rewrite one of the scenes where she has an affair. She described it as unrealistically male. Mm. (laughs) Now, Meryl Streep had a lot of allergies to cosmetics, which caused a lot of problems with some of the um, prosthetics that they had to use for what happens to her character. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, she never did another science fiction forward picture after this. I guess... Death Becomes Her was one of her longest film shoots. It's shot for seven months. And she says that she stayed in character by always being slightly pissed all the time. <laughs> Not a hard uh, experience for her. She didn't really enjoy shooting this movie. Mm, I can believe it. Now, through the 90s, she had some hits and misses. But one of her biggest hits would be Bridges, Bridges of Madison County in 1995, opposite Clint Eastwood. Uh, he's actually really good in it. He should have done more rom-coms mm. rather than trying to lean more into the toxic masculinity thing. Um, and then in the 2000s, she followed more activist work and kind of a return to stage, though some notable films um, that also show the range of projects she would pick include 2002's Mrs. Dalloway, 2004's Manchurian Candidate, Also from 2004, she was in Lemony Snicket's Series of Unfortunate Events, 2006's Devil Wears Prada, which I think was probably my first introduction to her of being like, oh, that's Meryl Streep. Got it. Yeah. Um, And then 2008's Doubt. Now, she has a long filmography. I'm not going to go into everything, but most recently she has been doing the Mamma Mia franchise. That's right. She was in the 2019 Little Women adaptation. 
2021's Don't Look Up, and she will be in the third season of Only Murders in the Building. She will be turning to 74 this year. Yeah, she was really good in Little Women. I mean, that was just like a good movie overall. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other female lead in this movie is Helen Sharp, who is an author, uh, and she is played by Goldie Hawn. It was very interesting to me going from Meryl Streep to Goldie Hawn, Mm. who have both had very long careers, but very, very different careers. Yes. Goldie Hawn was born in 1945 in Washington, D.C. She started in ballet and tap dance at three years old. Yep. Her first lead role on the dancing stage, specifically, um, was in 1964 in a ballet adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. She played Juliet. Um, And then at 19, she dropped out of college to start running her own ballet school. Oh, wow. In 1966, she was in New York, uh, giving it her all to be a professional dancer, and then moved to L.A. to be a dancer at the Melody Land Theater. In 1967, she got her TV debut acting in the sitcom Good Morning World. It was a very short-lived sitcom. It only lasted like two years. The persona she was carving out for herself was Dumb Blonde. Okay, yeah. In 1968, she got herself the role of Giggly Girl in this um, Disney musical film called The One, The Only Genuine Original Family Band. And this is where she would meet Kurt Russell for the first time, who was starring in that movie. Yeah, because he was a Disney kid. Yes. From 1968 to 1973, she was a recurring guest on the sketch comedy show Rowan and Martin's Laughing. Oh, yeah. Um, Again, kind of going with that dumb blonde stereotype. And that she managed to parlay into film uh, with her debut film being Cactus Flower in 1969. That would be with Walter Matthau and Ingrid Bergman. And Han won the uh, Best Supporting Actress Academy Award. Like first time out the gate? First time out the gate. I did not know that. Uh, She plays Walter Matthau's uh, suicidal girlfriend. Oh, wow. Um, And then she followed that up with 1970s, There's a Girl in My Soup with uh, (laughs) Peter Sellers. (laughs) And 1972's Butterflies Are Free with Eileen Heckert. Now, her film career is on the up and up, and that also led to two television specials, 1971's Pure Goldie and 1978's The Goldie Hawn Special, which I think is really interesting because that's like fairly early in her film career or like screen career, Mm -hmm. Um, but she's already being marketed as Goldie Hawn. Yeah, yeah. Now, these specials included singing and dancing and comedic segments with established and up-and-coming entertainers. In 1980, she did a TV special with Liza Minnelli called Goldie and Liza Together, which received um, Emmy nominations. Wild. Then she returned to film with 1980's Private Benjamin, in which she earned a nomination for Best Actress from the Academy. She had a string of hit comedies and rom-coms, including 1984's Swing Shift and 1987's Overboard, both of which I name because they are opposite Kurt Russell, and they began dating in 1983. Yes. In 1990, she uh, starred opposite Mel Gibson in Bird on a Wire, which is like an action comedy. Then she dabbled in like a thriller with the movie Deceived the following year, and in 1992, she had three films altogether, 
the drama Crisscross, the screwball comedy House Sitter, and the black comedy Death Becomes Her. Mm. Now, she is 47 at the time of this movie. And I think her character is also supposed to be over 50. Yeah, I mostly know Goldie Hawn as a comedian. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm struggling to think of, like, a dramatic role that I've seen her in. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear about, like, the variety that her career has had. Yeah. Now, she stepped away from acting while caring for her mother and then had a very active latter half of the 90s leading into the 2000s. But her last film role for a long time was 2002's The Banger Sisters with Susan Sarandon and Jeffrey Rush. Now, the reason why 2002 was kind of her last live action film is because in 2003, she started the Hahn Foundation. Uh, which is a nonprofit focused on providing youth education programs to increase academic performance by teaching kids about wellness, including like mental wellness. Hmm. Um, and I suspect a big part of this is inspired by Goldie Hawn's interest in Buddhism. Now, she returned to film with 2017's comedy Snatched with Amy Schumer. And most recently, she was Mrs. Claus in The Christmas Chronicles in 2018 and 2020. Right, because Kurt Russell plays Santa Claus. Exactly, yeah. 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 And she will be 78 this year. Yeah, she and Kurt Russell have never, like, they never got married, but they just, like, stayed together. Like, they're still together. They've been together since the early 80s. Yeah, it's, um, she has said that, like, it's the fact that they didn't get married that they've stayed together. Mm -hmm. Because there have been moments where, like, They've wanted to walk away and they've just kind of walked back. Right. Right. Uh, there wasn't as like definitive uh, an ending. Mm-hmm. Our male lead is none other than Bruce Willis. Yes. I feel like, I mean, you're going to get into this, but I feel like people need to understand that like there was a time when Bruce Willis was a comedy guy. <laughs> yes. So he plays Dr. Ernest Menville. He was born Walter Bruce Willis. In West Germany. Huh. In 1955. Like his dad was in the army or something? Yeah, uh, American dad, uh, German mother. Um, And I want to just note that he is 10 years younger than Goldie Hawn and six years younger than Meryl Streep. So he was brought to the U.S. by his dad um, to New Jersey with his German mother, uh, a sister, and two brothers. New Jersey definitely feels more Bruce Willis than West Germany. (laughs) He was very young, so like... Yeah, totally. Now, he had a stutter, and so in high school, he was called Buck Buck. Huh. But through drama club in high school, he reduced his stutter and grew his confidence to run and then be elected student council president. He graduated high school in 1973 uh, and kind of worked some odd jobs like security guard, then private investigator. (laughs) And then returned to school to pursue acting in the drama program at Montclair State. In 1977, he headed to New York City to be an actor and a bartender. Mm -hmm. Now, he uh, got his TV debut uh, in the TV series Moonlighting from 1985 to 89, where he plays a private investigator. Big hit TV show. Yes. Throughout that series, he would earn an Emmy for Outstanding Actor and a Golden Globe for Lead in a Comedy. And that's the thing. It's there's com- comedy in that. Yeah, it's kind of sitcommy or like rom-commy. Yeah. In 1987, he had an HBO special, uh, which also led to the simultaneous release of his 
uh, very first musical album called The Return of Bruno. Reviews said that it was, quote, surprisingly okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That same year, he starred as the lead in the film Blind Date with Kim Bessinger and director Blake Edwards. Edwards would bring him back for 1988 Sunset. And that same year, there was a film, a <laughs> little film that skyrocketed him to fame known as Die Hard, giving him his big break in action and quippy humor. He did many of his own stunts, and this genre would be what he mainly stays in for the rest of his career. Yeah, this is the thing, though, is like, I feel like there's a generation of people who grew up on Die Hard and now like idolize Bruce Willis as like the ultimate badass or something like that, which, by the way, is not the point of the movie Die Hard and the sequels that went with that being the point of the story are are off the mark. But also like that wasn't like Bruce Willis's deal when he made Die Hard like Bruce Willis was in comedies and that's why like he gets to be a little funny in Die Hard and I feel like the movies since then that have tried to make him more and more into like Clint Eastwood basically have like missed the point of like what he's good at yes I mean he's good at action I'm not sure gonna... sure yeah, yeah but yeah, definitely yeah. missed the mark now in 1989 after Die Hard he gave uh, singing another chance with a second album called If It Don't Kill You, It Makes You Stronger. You tell me how hard you think you're working. Say your nine to five done got you down. Grab your stuff and come on down to my place, yeah. We gonna show you how to fool around. It's all right. It's okay. Need a pep talk. Not tied to an HBO special. I could not find any reviews. Also in 1989, he had a dramatic turn with the movie In Country and then uh, did some voice acting in a movie called uh, Look Who's Talking, where he plays yes. a baby. Yes, that's right. Yes. And then he also did the sequel, Look Who's Talking 2. That's right. Look Who's Talking T-O-O. Yes. <laughs> There's a second baby. Now, also in 1990, he had Die Hard 2 and 1995 saw Die Hard with a Vengeance. And this is where you see him struggling with his uh career identity i mm -hmm. think because he's being pigeonholed into these action movies which sure he seems to really enjoy but i think he gets most of his joy as an actor out of doing what i'll call like character actor type of roles mm -hmm. like not necessarily comedy but just like or drama but just you know roles that aren't just one thing and you kind of see that with uh the other movies that he tried to do at this time that didn't quite get out there. Some of these are seen as cult movies now, but they didn't really get out there. So there was a uh, 1990 adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities, which uh -huh. was the satire black comedy movie. 91 saw Hudson Hawk, which was an action comedy. So like, okay. It's, it's an action comedy. He sings in it. Yes. It's wild. The plot makes no sense. It's also like a big vanity project. Like that was like his, like, I'm gonna make a movie for me thing. And it's, it's almost like that's the other side of the spectrum from when I'm talking about like how, you know, like Die Hard 5 doesn't use Bruce Willis well because it doesn't let him have any charm or personality. 
Hudson Hawk is the other side of that coin where it's like, but don't let Bruce Willis like have all the say in how much comedy <laughs> and personality he gets to do because he doesn't know where the line is. Yeah. Also, 1991 was The Last Boy Scout, which was a buddy action comedy. And then he starred in Death Becomes Her. He was 37 years old. Yeah, so this is kind of in that, like, weirdo period where he's trying to be like, I'm quirky. Yeah, and it's also like, I really want to know, like, how they came to choose him. Mm. Because originally, and this is that casting hiccup you mentioned, originally Kevin Klein was cast as Dr. Menville. Now, he would have just been off of the comedy Soap Dish and the drama Grand Canyon. And Klein was like, sure, I'll do this movie. Give me more money. And they were like, no. <laughs> so then they looked at Jeff Bridges, who would have just been off the comedy drama The Fisher King, which are you? I'm not sure if that's actually a comedy, but that's what Wikipedia said. It's got Robin Williams in it, is the thing. Mm, okay, but not everything he, Robin Williams no. is in this is a comedy. The Fisher King is like more of a drama than a comedy, but like yeah, Robin Williams is in it, so... Um, so Jeff Bridges makes it also kind of an odd choice. Jeff Bridges was also like a popular romantic lead in the 80s. Yeah. And then Nick Nolte was also considered. Now, he would have just been off of a romantic drama with The Prince of Tides, but he also had a nomination for the Best Actor Oscar and won the Golden Globe for Best Actor. So I can see why they wouldn't go with Nolte. Um, so I guess Bruce Willis was just the last person on that list. And he said, yes, because he wants to do something weird. That's the thing. Like if you've seen Hudson Hawk, like that's the kind of movie Bruce Willis wants to make. And you will watch that and you will go, that's not the kind of movie I want Bruce Willis to make. And so like, there's this sweet spot where he kind of needs to be like funny, but underplaying it like in die hard, because when he kind of is allowed to go off like the leash he, he, like I said, he doesn't know where the, the line is. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the movies that were like slightly weird, but are more cult movies now would be 94's Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. 95's 12 Monkeys, 97's Fifth Element. I don't know if you could call Sixth Sense that in 1998. But Sixth like, Sense was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Pulp Fiction is, is, I think, a lot more than a cult movie these days, right? Sure. Um, another big hit for him was in 1998 with... Armageddon. Yes. Which I think for me personally was when I was like, oh, this is Bruce Willis. Mm. Like identifying that's the actor. Right. Because for some reason we watched that movie in band when the teacher <laughs> didn't want to teach. Weird. Um, so like I said, there are attempts for dramatic or at least character actor roles, but he's typically pulled back into action. And this continues into the 2000s. He was in, uh, you, you see him kind of better balancing it with uh, 2000's Unbreakable, mm -hmm. um, and then 2005's Sin City. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of goes off the rails and is just basically action with 2005's Hostage, 2007's Live Free or Die Hard, 2010's Cop Out, The Expendables, and Red. Mm -hmm. Red's kind of on the line. But yeah, his like late career has been very like, no, I'm a badass. You know, he did do 2012's Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So trying to do stuff, but yes. Now, unfortunately, I have to talk about something a little sad hmm. with Bruce Willis. Um, so around 2019 and 2020, you could see some kind of decline 
in Bruce Willis on set. And this is likely around the time when he received an aphasia diagnosis. Um, now, aphasia, if you don't know, is like a brain disorder. You have trouble speaking. You have trouble comprehending what people are saying to you. You get very confused because you're not quite sure, like, why am I here? It's a little similar to, like, Alzheimer's in that way. Yeah, it's it's like you forget, like, what words mean. Yeah. And you'll, like, say a sentence that makes sense to you but doesn't make sense to anybody else because you're using words to, like, mean different things. Yeah. Yeah. There's some controversy because it's around this time that Bruce Willis started a professional relationship with a producer named Randall Emmett, beginning with the 2019 direct-to-video action movie, 10 Minutes Gone. And starting with that movie, they made a shit ton of direct-to-video action movies where Bruce Willis is being Bruce Willis the action star. And people on set are even noticing, like, Bruce Willis is having trouble. At one point, he unloads a, a gun that has a blank in it, not on cue. So that could have been a, a really terrible tragedy. To kind of give you an idea of the quantity of films, they made, or at least released, seven in 2021. Wow. And 12 in 2022. Wow. So these are just pumped out. Pumped out. So this led to speculations of elder abuse on the mm -hmm. part of the producer. There were cases of them even like redubbing Bruce Willis's dialogue based on like AI calculating yes. the, like what his voice would sound like. That's how I heard about this was like people sharing clips from this movie where like they were comparing the finished movie to the trailer and showing you that like they had redubbed him with an AI voice and the, like the film is shot so that you don't see his mouth like moving when he talks and things like that. Yeah. And I guess like directors have said that when they would be making these movies, they would get notices from the producer saying like, you need to cut back Bruce Willis's dialogue. Yes. Uh, by like five pages or something like that. Now, despite these allegations, uh, Bruce Willis's attorney has sent out a statement saying that Bruce Willis worked because he wanted to work for as long as he could. Mm. But he's now officially retired, though some of these films that were direct-to-video uh, are currently going through post-production, so they'll be released through 2023, but he's officially retired, and Bruce Willis will be 68 this year. Mm. Yeah, sort of a sad, sad ending to that story. Yeah, but I'm glad that people have stepped in, mm. <laughs> because while they have said that it's not elder abuse... But I think the fact that there's a question means that, you know, it's good that he's no longer working. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, like, just because he wants to keep working doesn't mean he isn't being exploited. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Especially with the rate of these movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Now, the fourth star that I am going to mention is the actress who plays the character Lyle Von Vrumen who comes up with the uh, the potion that our female leads drink. She is played by Isabella Rossellini. Mm -hmm. Are you like, oh, yeah, we should mention her? Is that what's going through your brain? Yeah, I was like, I was like, if you're going to do like a fourth actor to focus on, like this is the person I would like, like you to focus on. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean I get a gold star? Yes, you get a gold <laughs> star, Sarah. Rossellini was born in 1952 in Rome. She is the daughter of actress Ingrid Bergman and director Roberto Rossellini. To bring back uh, an earlier connection to Ingrid Bergman, Bergman worked with Goldie Hawn on 1969's Cactus Flower. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, did you know that Isabella had a fraternal twin? No, I didn't know that. She actually has a total of seven siblings. Holy smokes. Her twin, a brother, a half-sister through her mom, and then four half-siblings through her dad. Wow. Wasn't um, Ingrid Bergman's relationship with Roberto Rossellini, like, didn't that start out as, like, an affair that, like, really damaged Ingrid Bergman's career? Shh. Got it. This isn't about Ingrid Bergman. This is about (laughs) Isabella Rossellini. Got it. Cool. That's also why I didn't mention Goldie Hawn's daughter, Kate Hudson, or the fact that Goldie Hawn's kids and Meryl Streep's kids are all in the film industry. Yes. This isn't about them. (laughs) Got it. We gotta cut, we gotta cut back somewhere. Now, Isabella was raised between Rome and Paris. She had scoliosis. Oh. uh, And so starting at 11, uh, she had treatment. And so she has scars on her back and on her shins. And at age 19, she moved to New York City in 1971 for school. And while in the U.S., she would work as a TV reporter for the Radio Televisione Italiana. um, So basically like Italian TV. Mm -hmm. Um. And she would meet Martin Scorsese in an interview. Okay. And they'd later marry. (laughs) (laughs) They would get married in 1979. I didn't know that. Oh, really? Yeah, no, she's she's great. So she's on TV as this reporter. Uh But she gets her film debut opposite her mother in the 1976 film A Matter of Time. Okay. Which I should note is not an American film. She started dabbling in modeling. And that became a big part of her career. Uh, She was modeling for Vogue in 1980. She would be 28 years old. And she was a spokesperson for Lancôme starting in 1982. Um, And that happens to be when she divorced Scorsese. Got it. Her first American film was 1985's White Nights. And she followed that up with 1986's Blue Velvet. Yeah. From uh, David Lynch who she would marry that same year. Now, in Blue Velvet, uh, she plays um, like a singer, uh, and she did her own singing. For that film, she would win the Best Lead Female Award from the Independent Spirit Awards. She never, it seems, focused on film as her career. Mm -hmm. Um, She was kind of doing modeling and acting at the same time. Uh, She would... Star in the 1989 film Cousins from director Joel Schumacher, which is a romantic comedy. And the 1990s Wild at Heart with director David Lynch. It's a black comedy. And then 1992's Death Becomes Her. She would be 40 years old at the time. Uh, She won a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress, which I think is really neat. Uh, And this same year, she modeled for Madonna's book Sex. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, also was in her music video for the song Erotica. Now, she has been a spokesperson for Lancome throughout this entire time uh, until 1996 when she was 43 and she was let go for being too old. Hmm. In the 2000s, Rossellini would turn to TV and stage with the off-Broadway production of 2004's The Stendhal Syndrome and having recurring roles on uh, the TV show Alias and the miniseries Legend of Earthsea. Oh, yeah. In 2004. Very bad. (laughs) But I'm sure she's good. Now, through the 2010s, (laughs) she's been narrating and producing documentaries on the animal kingdom, particularly on uh, animal sexual behaviors (laughs) Uh, and maternal instincts. Uh 
she has this series called, um, I believe it's called uh, Green Porn, where it's just <laughs> animals having sex. In 2018, she did a, a stage play uh, called The Smallest Circle in the World, where it was her and her dog, who is like fully trained to do like tricks and stuff. And between the two of them, they'd be portraying animals and philosophers, talking about the animal kingdom and conservation. Okay. So she'd be Aristotle or uh-huh. Rousseau. Uh, uh-huh. I just think that's really funny. I just really like that. She uh-huh. seems so quirky. I mean, you have to be quirky if you're if in your romantic history you were with Martin Scorsese and David Lynch. Yeah, for sure. Now, most recently, she has had uh, TV and film cameos, such as uh, a voice in the 2021 Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, and um, some upcoming projects that are currently in post-production. And she turned 70 this year. Now, this is an all-star cast, mm-hmm. and we're also stacked with miscellaneous people, I guess you could say. Um, some other people that I want to mention are um, Elena Reed Hall, who is probably most recognizable as uh, uh, Olivia Robinson from Sesame Street. She was on Sesame Street from 1976 to 1988 and uh, also was in the 1985 Big Bird movie called Look Out That Bird. Hmm. Michelle Johnson will be recognized uh, through her time on The Love Boat. She also did a couple episodes of Moonlighting with Bruce Willis and had recurring roles on Murder, She Wrote and Melrose Place. Um, Now, I'm surprised you didn't mention this person. Um, Mary Ellen Trainer has a cameo here. She is uh, currently married to Robert Zemeckis at the time of this movie. She had her TV debut with cheers and was in lethal weapon one two three and four uh she was in die hard and people probably will most recognize her from the goonies yes she's also in i think the back to the future movies and roger rabbit yeah during she, this time yes yeah, she would meet robert zemeckis on romancing the stone yeah yeah they're divorced now yes um i think like basically they got divorced and then Robert Zemeckis started making movies I don't like. So, you know, maybe it's all all her. Now, this next actress, Susan Kellerman, we've seen before. She was in Beetlejuice. She was one of the dinner guests. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she was also in the 1988 Elvira movie, Last Holiday, and has had many, many TV roles. A character that you will see and probably be like, where do I know him from? Like you specifically, Ben, is uh, William Frankfather. And that's because he was on Deep Space Nine. Mm. But he has also been on Tales from the Crypt, Wings, and A-Team. And his films include The Rocketeer and is probably best known for his uh, role as uh, Whitey Jackson, an albino killer in the 1978 film Foul Play, which was with Goldie Hawn. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the people in the cast, I will say just offhand, have been in or would be in Tales from the Crypt episodes, like uh, Isabella Rossellini's in one or two, I think. Mm -hmm. Another that person is going to be Deborah Jo Rupp. Yes. Now, she, in my mind, is Kitty Foreman from That 70s Show, but she has had a long stage career and a long TV career. Her film debut was in Big as the secretary, Miss Patterson. Death Becomes Her would be her third film. Uh, and as I said, a long, long TV career, most recently on WandaVision and currently that 90s show. Mm-hmm. 
Now, director Sidney Pollack has a cameo. Uh, now, he was the director of 1985's Out of Africa with Meryl Streep. He actually started in the entertainment industry as an actor in 1956, including on episodes of The Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In 1965, he turned to directing with uh, The Slender Thread, and his films include The Three Days of Condor in 1975, 1982's Tootsie, and 2005's The Interpreter. Mm-hmm. Sidney Pollock's a big deal as a director. Yeah. And last, but certainly not least, I have to mention Fabio. Oh, Fabio's Fabio. in this. Yes. He was born Fabio Lanzoni, and he is most famously known as a romance novel cover model and for having an unfortunate roller coaster incident with a bird. Yes. Um, and because I did this with our main cast, uh, Fabio is 33 in okay. this movie. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> That was a lot. I'm sorry. That's okay. So shooting for Death Becomes Her was from December 9th, 1991 to April 7th, 1992 on a budget of $55 million. Uh, Apropos of something, an episode of Tales from the Crypt at this time typically cost a million dollars, which was super lavish for a TV show at the time. Yes. Um, as with his previous four films, Zemeckis used Death Becomes Her to push the limits of special and visual effects work. You know, the Back to the Future movies are big special effects movies, and then Who Framed Roger Rabbit was this big step forward in, like, animation and compositing. And a lot of Zemeckis's films after this also are kind of special effects showcases. Um, his film that he did immediately after this was Forrest Gump which is like a comedy drama, but is notable for like the scenes where they put Forrest Gump into like historical footage. Mm. And then a lot of what he's been doing since like the mid 2000s has been like motion capture CGI movies, Um, stuff like Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, etc. That all kind of tracks, honestly, with like where his interest kind of lies. Yeah. um, Like his most recent film is the Disney live action remake of Pinocchio. Um, So Tom Hanks all over the place. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, So, yeah, like a lot of his movies after this are kind of special effects showcases. In this case, uh, the case of Death Becomes Her, uh, this movie includes like traditional optical effects and animatronics. Um, However, Zemeckis was unhappy with the animatronics uh, that were done for this film by Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis, uh, who are um, amalgamated dynamics. Um, They're like Stan Winston's protégés. They've done lots and lots of creature effects over the years. Um, But Zemeckis felt that their animatronics didn't look realistic enough. So he engaged the services of Industrial Light and Magic Mm. to create CGI effects uh, for this film. Um, considered groundbreaking for their time, uh, this movie includes the first use of CGI in a feature film to replicate the look of human skin. So that's its its little footnote claim to fame. <laughs> so Meryl Streep disliked working on this effects-heavy film. Uh, she found the work to be mechanical, tedious, lacking in spontaneity and feedback from her fellow actors, um, that it was way too difficult to be comedic while like concentrating on having to be in precisely the right positions for the effect shots. You know, she complained about like acting against tennis balls and, and things like this. Like she just really didn't like it. Mm. Um, so she vowed to never again work on an effects heavy film. She has kind of broken that vow a few times. Um, but in a lot of the cases, like, 
AI, artificial intelligence. She's just voicing a character. So she didn't have to be like on set with the special effects. I feel like that's different. Yeah. Um, but she did appear in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events in 2004, which was an effects movie. I don't know if her scenes were effects heavy, though. I've not seen that movie. She is not in special effects sort of thing. She is in uh, traditional, I guess is the word. Normal ass movie scenes. Normal ass movie scenes and normal ass movie costumes and all that. So the film's cinematography is by Dean Cudney, who began his career shooting low budget horror films uh, for years. By the time he was recruited to shoot John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978, Mm. which featured groundbreaking use of Steadicam technique. Uh, Cudney has also shot such films as The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween 2, The Thing, Halloween 3, Psycho 2, Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, Big Trouble in Little China, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, Back to the Future Parts 2 and 3, Hook, Jurassic Park, The Flintstones, Casper, Apollo 13, Flubber, Looney Tunes Back in Action, and he also directed 1997's Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Damn. So a lot of horror, a lot of comedy, a lot of special effects work. Uh, The film's editor is Arthur Schmidt, the son of Golden Age Hollywood editor Arthur P. Schmidt, and films Schmidt has worked on include Jaws 2, The Coal Miner's Daughter, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, for which he won an Oscar. Yeah, Back- I was going to say, like, editing that movie must have been so hard. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future Part 2 and 3, The Rocketeer, Last of the Mohicans, Adam's Family Values, Forrest Gump, for which he won an Oscar, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, and Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. So what you can kind of see here, which I think is admirable, is like, Zemeckis had a shitty career. He directs Romancing the Stone. It makes a bunch of money and, and like pole vaults him. And he just kept the crew yeah. with him through all of these other movies, right? Like Contact, What Lies Beneath, those are Zemeckis films. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is very admirable. Like pull everyone up with you, you know? Uh, speaking of people who've worked with Robert Zemeckis a lot, uh, the film's score is by Alan Silvestri, who has scored every single Robert Zemeckis film, starting with Romancing the Stone and going forward from there. So I'm not going to tell you about Zemeckis films that Silvestri has scored. It's all of them. Uh, But some (laughs) non-Zemeckis films that Silvestri has scored include Predator, The Abyss, Predator 2, Fern Gully, Father of the Bride, Father of the Bride Part 2, The Bodyguard, Super Mario Brothers, Judge Dredd, Grumpy Old Men, Grumpier Old Man, Stuart Little, Stuart Little 2, The Mummy Returns, Lilo and Stitch, Laura Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, Van Helsing, G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, Captain America, The First Avenger, The Avengers, Ready Player One, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. When you said Judge Dredd, for a moment I was like, oh shit. He scored Dread no, too. No, no. And I was like, no, no, no. There was like the Sylvester Stallone. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie. No, no, no. Not. But, not but still the... very impressive as a, a filmography for yeah, him. Yeah. No. Not the badass score of the 2012 film Dread, starring Carl Urban. Great score. Um, so, Death Becomes Her's test screenings went really badly. 
audiences did not like the movie. So that led to Zemeckis cutting a significant chunk of the movie out to tighten up the pacing and make it less of like a slog, Mm -hmm. like just keep things moving. It also led to them just tossing the ending out Mm -hmm. completely and shooting an entirely new ending, uh, which resulted in a character played by comedian Tracy Ullman being cut from the movie entirely. Uh, This was done late enough in production that the film's trailer features a lot of scenes that are just not in the movie. Universal Pictures released Death Becomes Her on July 31st, 1992. It came out the same weekend as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, easy. Easy money. (laughs) Uh, That movie's terrible. (laughs) And Death Becomes Her grossed $159 million on its $55 million budget. A success but notably a minor one compared to Zemeckis' previous five films. Like, this is a guy who's been pumping out $300 million movies, and this is one fifty nine. dollars So this, like, at the time, was considered, like, oh, like a stumble for Robert Zemeckis, even though, like, it still, like, made good money. Um, It received mixed reviews from critics. Uh, Praise went to the special effects. And some praise went to Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. But the script was generally seen as like shallow and not as clever as it thought it was. Um, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down, saying... One thumb from each of them. (laughs) Yes, that's how that rating system worked, Sarah. That's, 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 yeah, that's the whole deal. That's how two thumbs up and two thumbs down works. It's because there's two of them. Uh, they said that the film lacked any real substance or character depth. Okay. But again, if you see this through the lens of it's a Tales from the Crypt story. Yes. Where the characters are meant to just be like broad archetypes. The characters are kind of meant to be two-dimensional. Yes. Um, however, the film did win the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects Uh, It was up against Alien 3, or Alien Cubed, as I like to call it, and Batman Returns. Um, yeah. I can see this winning over those. It's it's important to note that this is best visual effects, not best special effects. That's the difference for me, for specifically with um, Batman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, For those of you who don't understand the difference, best special effects are things that are done, like, in front of the camera. Explosions, model work, map paintings. Um, best visual effects are things that are done in post-production, like optical compositing, you know, CGI, and anything like that. So in the years since this movie came out, Death Becomes Her has become a popular cult film within the queer community, with Streep and Han's characters being popular inspirations for drag performances. There was even a challenge on an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race that was based on this movie, I believe kind of what they said at the time was that the characters are like relatable to queer people and and like drag performers and all this because of the fact that like they're villains, but they've been like villainized by society for like things that are outside of their control. And they are like kind of taking that back through like their appearance and like creating these personas for themselves and things like that. Um, It's also just like super fucking campy. So yeah, it's, have not having seen the movie mm-hmm. so i can reflect on this after but it would be the camp and female villain yeah 
so this film was released, you know, on VHS and Laserdisc back in the 90s. Uh, if you wanted it in widescreen, it was Laserdisc. Um, and then it was released on DVD uh, in the early days of DVD. And this film's DVD release is considered to be one of the worst of all time. No! It has been called appallingly bad. Uh, with a blurry, grainy transfer with sloppy, muted colors. Um, it featured only a full-screen pan-and-scan uh, image and no special features. It was generally thought that the transfer was just the Laserdisc transfer put on a DVD disc and cropped to full-screen. Uh, you could get a widescreen DVD of this in Germany. <laughs> um, and so there were calls for like an improved, restored release for years leading to Shout Factory putting out a collector's edition on Blu-ray in 2016. While that release was acknowledged as a vast improvement over the DVD, it still came in for criticism for having a soft image and muddy colors. Additionally, the disc only features, for special features, the trailer, a vintage promo behind-the-scenes featurette, a behind-the-scenes look at the VFX, and that's it. Oh, uh, not what you'd really call a collector's edition, notably lacking obvious inclusions like all of those deleted scenes and the original ending, which to this day have still never been released in any form mm. other than what you can see in glimpses in the trailer. Online, Death Becomes Her is available on iTunes, Google Play, the Cineplex Store, the Microsoft Store, YouTube, and Amazon. But uh, what are they showing? Well, I mean, if you're seeing it in HD, you're seeing the Shout Factory blu-ray version okay well folks hopefully you can watch the hd version somewhere and watch along with us you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss death becomes her from 1992 directed by robert zemeckis see you on the other side everybody Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Death Becomes Her from 1992, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Sarah, what did you think? This movie is very good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I very much enjoyed myself. It is a movie that you can't take seriously. No, no, definitely not. Um, yeah, it's good. It's fun. It's light. It's silly. It's absolutely that kind of like EC comic style horror humor. Absolutely. Let's uh, talk about the story. Well, we start in 1978, and actress Madeline Ashton and author Helen Sharp have kind of this ongoing rivalry, both in terms of like looks and love. Case in point, uh, Madeline ends up stealing Helen's fiance, Dr. Ernest Menville. So, can I tell you a bit of uh, a bit of a fun fact about the names of the characters in this movie? <laughs> sure. So it's it's Madeline, Ernest, and Helen, right? And throughout the movie, they'll call each other by like nicknames, like Mad, Ern, and Hell. Yeah. Uh, because it's Madder and Hell. They're mm. they're they're Madder than Madder than Hell is it's the, that's the joke. Madder and Hell. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, go on. It's seven years later, in 1985, and Helen is fat with many cats 
all of which looked very cute. <laughs> uh, so 10 out of 10 for cat content. And Helen gets sent to a mental institution to basically get over her obsession with Madeline. And she begins to plot her revenge. Another seven years later, and now we are in 1992. And Madeline is basically like a washed up actress, like super rich, big ass house. Um, but I don't know if she's getting work anymore. And she's definitely obsessed with her looks and looking young. Ernest can no longer perform surgery, uh, so he works as a reconstructive mortician, which my only problem with this movie, I think, is that they treat that as, like, lesser than, mm. when really, like, that is incredibly important, and morticians of any stock, whether it's reconstructive or just standard, I guess, uh, do a lot of work and are just as valuable as plastic surgeons sure sure i just it kept bothering me sure like i don't know i have a lot of respect for morticians i guess got it anyway so madeline and ernest are invited to helen sharp's book launch madeline is like okay well now i need to go get more, some more plastic surgery uh to make sure that i look my best for tonight now, the place where she goes, they're like, no, we can't do anything more for you. Like, you're supposed to space this out. We just did the last one three weeks ago. Like, we can't help you. And then there is one guy there who is very gay, <laughs> <laughs> who gives Madeline a card for this person named Liesel von Rumen, who is, like, renowned for rejuvenance. At the book launch... Madeline and Ernest are surprised to see that Helen looks young and fit and healthier than ever. And this makes Madeline very, very jealous and very self-conscious about her looks. Helen also tries to uh, seduce Ernest, saying, like, I never blamed you. Like, I've always still had feelings for you, that sort of thing. She's kind of trying to, like, play them against one another because she also tells Madeline that she's never blamed Madeline or had bad feeling against her. True. So That night, Madeline uh, goes to see her uh, side piece, her boyfriend, uh, who is, like, 20 years old, and he's off with some girl, and so she's, like feeling really down on herself and on her looks and she ends up going to Liesel and this is when she learns of this potion that it will you know stop your body from aging and you will feel young and like yourself again but uh, after 10 years you need to kind of go into seclusion so people don't get suspicious but also you need to really take care of your body um, you may look great, but you really need to make sure that you upkeep. Madeline pays uh, with a check and takes the potion and, yeah, is feeling like she has like a 20-year-old body again. If this movie was done now, I'm sure they would use the like weird, creepy Marvel movie de-aging thing that they do all the time now. But like the trick of this movie was like casting actresses in their 40s to play characters who are in their 50s who so you then look like they're in their 30s right so that you kind of can can play with the age with uh, how you're doing the makeup and stuff yeah meanwhile uh while madeline is with liesel 
uh, Helen goes to Ernest and seduces him, convincing him to kill Madeline. And she has like this huge long plan that will like ensure that no one gets caught and that it looks like Madeline, like it was an accidental death. Ernest is convinced, but that night he and Madeline get into a very big fight and he ends up pushing her down the stairs Uh, and he's freaking out because she's dead. She's very dead. Or is she? It's alive. Um, She uh, gets up because she cannot die. She is that age forever. Even though her vertebrae is sticking up out of her neck, uh, she exists. I'll put it that way. She's not alive. She's undead. (laughs) They head to the hospital, confirms that uh, Madeline doesn't have a heartbeat, um, is not maintaining body temperature. Um, Her wrist is completely broken. Um, There's a good bit where like it bends all the way back and she's like, no, it doesn't hurt. What are you talking about? But it's done like without the focus being on the wrist. So it's really well done. Ernest believes that this is like a miracle. We're supposed to be together. And he gets all these supplies to basically reconstruct her because he's a mortician. Meanwhile, Helen, uh, who was called right after uh, the stairs incident, believes that Madeline is dead and has come over to help bury the body and then discovers that, no, Madeline is walking around. Uh, Unfortunately, Madeline learns of Helen's plot to have her killed And so she shoots Helen with a shotgun and Helen's dead or not. She she's alive, but she now has a giant hole in her stomach. They each took the potion. Uh, So they get a little bit of a a fight, a a cat fight, if you will. Um, The cats from seven years ago uh, weren't the only cats coming around. Mm. Fun fact, uh, when they have the like sword fight with the shovels, um, That's a shovel fight. Yeah, the shovel fight. Uh, Meryl Streep scarred Goldie Hawn's cheek with her shovel. Oh no! Yeah, like she accidentally like swiped her. Well, no wonder they were being so careful then when they were fighting. Because yeah. it was like you guys aren't fighting. Yeah, it was very like sort of staged looking fighting. Yeah, but that puts that into context. So after they fight, they reconcile. They're like, "Yeah, I was a bitch because I stole all your boyfriends." Yeah, and I was a bitch because I didn't invite you to my sleepovers or whatever it is. And so they're like, cool, okay, we're best friends now. Uh, So they go to Ernest to be like, hey, can you reconstruct us? Because we're friends now. And Ernest is like, fine, but I'm getting out of here. I've had enough. And at first, Madeline and Helen are like, yeah, sure, we we don't care about you. And then they go, but what if our body deconstructs more like what if an arm falls off like what if the paint peels uh what if it rains we need to keep Ernest around so they kidnap him to Liesel's because if he drinks the potion then he is having to stick around to upkeep his own body you know what I mean except in Liesel's pitch of like you'll be able to do surgeries again and you'll live forever and he is not swayed he's like that's terrible everyone around me is going to die what if I get bored um basically all of the arguments of like why you shouldn't let a vampire bite you that kind (laughs) of thing um and so he says no and he manages to escape the big castle then we see it is 37 years later uh 2029 and it's at Ernest's funeral 
um, we hear that uh, that moment that he escaped, he was like 50 years old and he decided to go and live a full life. He met his second wife. They had kids and they had a ton of adopted kids as well. He started like many foundations to, for like marital counseling. <laughs> um, he uh, was a recovered alcoholic. Like he had all this like great stuff happen to him. Yeah, he was basically a saint. <laughs> like After all of that... Now, Helen and Madeline are sitting in the back, and uh, they basically leave because they're like, ugh, what's what's with this? Um, And they're bickering at each other as well. As they bicker, uh, they show their faces, and we see that it's basically like plastered, spray paint, like barely held together. Um, And then they have a trip down some stairs uh, and fall and break into pieces at the end. Um, But of course, they're still alive, even in pieces. I've heard of falling apart at funerals, but this is ridiculous, Ben. Ha 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 ha. And that's the end. <laughs> yeah, I I really enjoyed this. I think it's campy. It's hilarious. Um, I think that it's never taking itself too seriously, and so you shouldn't either. Mm-hmm. So I talked about, like, there was a lot of deleted scenes. Yes. Um. So, like, deleted scenes throughout the whole movie. There's stuff where... There's stuff where, like, Madeline's talking to her agent that, like, established that she's not getting work anymore. There's stuff with, like, in the morgue, there was supposed to be, like, a priest who was dead and a bunch of nuns who were supposed to be, like, identifying the priest's body. Uh, But we just see the nuns, like, floating away from the morgue when Ernest comes down there with no explanation. Because we don't need it. We don't need it. It's just silly and fun. Um, I think it's really good that they cut all that stuff. After um, Madeline, like, dies uh, and and he gets, like, her home from the hospital and stuff, um, initially there was going to be this whole subplot where, like, you know, he has to stop her from, like, decomposing until he can um, remove her blood and embalm her, uh, which we see later. So he puts her in the fridge and there's going to be a scene where uh, their maid comes home and, like, opens up the fridge and sees her inside and and this kind of thing. There was also a whole deleted subplot where Ernest had like a bartender where he would go to this bar to like drink his problems away. And there's this bartender named Tony played by Tracy Ullman who like listens to his problems and becomes like his love interest as it becomes increasingly clear that like Madeline and Helen are like neither of them are any good. And so after he, the original ending was that after he escapes from Liesel's party, he goes to Tony and she helps him fake his death. And when Madeline and Helen show up at Tony's to be like, where's Ernest? Like she explains to them that like he's dead. And then we cut to the 27, 29 years later and it's Switzerland. Madeline and Helen are like in the Swiss Alps at like a, vacation resort kind of place and it's the same kind of thing where like they're all like this caked on spray paint and and so on and they look awful and they spot this like elderly couple uh who are like all like snuggling together and super cute and in love and madeline and helen get like super jealous of like these old people who were able to like be happy in their old age uh and they like scoff and and walk away and then they get run over by a car uh, and shatter into a bunch of pieces, just like in the 
finished film. And of course, the the old couple that's happy and together is Ernest and Tony, but they don't recognize them. Um, and in fact, uh, when they did the new ending where it's Ernest's dead and we're at his funeral, there's like a picture of him all old. And that's just like reusing the old age makeup uh, that they did for the original ending. But like, I can see why this was cut and changed primarily because like you can just like cut the running time of the movie like so far down like to have this whole other subplot about faking his death and so on after the escape from Liesel's party I think it like it would just been too much it's too much the thing is is with camp it can wear out its welcome really quickly Mm -hmm. and like even if you have a a taste for it right like it can only go on for so long Mm -hmm. the escape from Liesel's party was going on a little bit too long. It honestly does. A little does. bit too long. Yeah. But otherwise, like, nothing feels like it wears out its welcome. If it had gone on for that long and this whole other subplot, like, that would have been too much. This is nice and quick and, yeah, it's tight. Yeah, you can really notice it at the start of the movie where we kind of, like, bing, bang, boom through the backstory. Movies like this where you have a lot of, like, complex backstory where you have to understand that like oh madeline and helen have been friends forever but like madeline always steals her boyfriends and like and the thing about like all that backstory is when you're making films you know the the old adage is like show don't tell but when you have like a long backstory like that if you decide to show all of that that's like adding like an hour before the start of your movie before your story really gets started and so you know here we just get like one scene sort of a piece for the seven year gaps and whatever mm-hmm. um, that really quickly established like what we need to know without like wasting time on a lot of um, filler material. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And the thing is, is also these people, even Ernest, mm-hmm. these aren't pleasant people to be around. No. Cutting down the time that I have to spend with these people makes it, worthwhile for like the time that I do spend with them. Right. Like it's kind of like less is more. Yeah. And, and, you know, with how, um, kind of two dimensional they are with, um, the satire here being very broad, I think that, you know, if you were spending a lot of time with like, Oh, let's have more scenes of like Madeline being obsessed with her youth and being a total bitch to people, you know, to demonstrate character or whatever, give her more character depth. Like it would just, be awful i think like potentially i would think that a problem critics might have had with this movie is like again if you don't understand that you should be seeing this through the lens of like tales from the crypt i you know you could look at this and be like yeah all of the characters in this are unlikable like who am i supposed to be rooting for you know i thought i was supposed to be rooting for helen but helen's also awful like what's going on here and it's like no 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 like all of them are terrible on purpose. Like that's the the style of this kind of story. Yeah. And when you know that and you have that kind of good expectation, I think it helps with understanding like what tone they are going for here. And I think the fact that it started out as a, like a longer episode, but still an episode of something, hmm. you can only stretch that out for so long, right? For sure. Before it starts feeling like extra and extra filler. Yeah. This didn't feel like it had extraneous superfluous filler and i think that there's only so long you can have like catty bitches Mm. around before you start to tune it out just like yeah i get it they're catty yeah you know like change up the cattiness or make it shorter so it still feels like 
engaging. For sure. Yeah, there was all kinds of like um, stuff that is, it's, it's just like a perfect example of the stuff that you can just cut from a movie and it doesn't matter. Like there was a whole explanation of like what Liesel's deal was and like what her motivations are. And like she was originally supposed to be like Cleopatra um, surviving through the centuries and like giving this potion to people because she was trying to like preserve the greatest minds and talents of humanity forever and like all of this stuff like there was a whole thing and it's like it just doesn't you don't matter that. As, especially like you know if it was just like a tv episode you just you know you're watching tales from the crypt you know it's just like it's a spooky mansion she's a spooky babe in a spooky mansion it's it's like the fact that they give her this like gothic castle in the middle of LA where like it's always thunder and lightning. Uh, I think it, it, that tells the audience everything they need to know. Like, cool. It's the spooky horror castle. Great. I don't need to know any backstory. Some cameos of celebrities Mm. we see at Liesl's party include Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, James Dean, Warhol. Yeah. Andy Warhol. And Jim Morrison from The Doors is the other one. Okay, I didn't... That's the guy when Ernest falls into the pool. Okay, I thought that he was trying to be... Like, that that was supposed to be something, but um, yeah. don't don't yell at me. I don't know The Doors very well. <laughs> uh, I'm more into Windows. <laughs> um, I think Bruce Willis is so fun and good in this. And yeah. And I really wish he got to do more camp. Yeah, he's really funny in this. I think it's really a good part for him. The whole role of being like kind of this, you know, middle-aged, impotent, alcoholic, coward is just like so good when you've gotten really used to like him being pigeonholed into badass action hero. I think it's really interesting to kind of compare Bruce Willis in this movie Mm. and Brendan Fraser in Blast from the Past. Okay, Because it's both, like, in both cases, so different from what they were doing before. Like, before Blast from the Past, Brendan Fraser was doing, like, The Mummy or Tarzan. And, like, just there to look like a certain version of masculinity. And then gets to do something totally different. And in Bruce Willis's case, like, Die Hard is a certain type of masculinity. And here it's, like, um, an undercutting of that. Uh, with like what you said with like being impotent in that way I don't know I just think it's kind of interesting to see that parallel you're looking at me like I'm just making shit up so that's okay that's that's, okay that's okay um without looking it up I'm pretty sure Brandon Brendan Fraser's um comedic roles came first like yeah he was in George of the Jungle which was a comedy and Blast from the Past is kind of like a weird dramedy I would say Um, and I think it was like after he was established as like big, dumb, goofus comedy boy that he did the mummy and got to be a heroic square jaw, right? Yeah, no, the mummy and blast from the past are very close to each other. I can't remember the dates off the top of my head right now, Hmm. but they're very, very close to each other. Yeah. I guess, I guess I was just trying to like make clear that like, like Brendan Fraser was comedy first and then action. I mean, I guess Bruce Willis was the same way, but then here we're seeing him like after he's done action and he's trying to like, you know, back. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that there's something interesting there. Um, and yeah, I, like I said, I really wish he got to do more camp. Yeah. He's really funny in this. Like I think Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep get a lot of the attention 
from people when they talk about this movie. Um, I think they're both fine. They're like funny and they're doing their parts well. But honestly, I think Bruce Willis is doing more. Well, he has to be a little bit of the straight man. Or actually, the women are the straight men. Yes. Um, Bruce Willis is the one doing all the like zany overreactions to everything, yeah, right? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that everyone in this movie is very good. I don't think anyone was particularly weak. I was surprised at how little Fabio has in this movie. He has one scene. I yeah. thought from everything I read that he had much more. Yeah. Um, Liesl has like a whole wait staff basically of like sexy romance book cover men. There's Harry and Dick. And Tom. Tom. Yeah. Because it's a joke on on Tom, Dick and Harry, right? Yeah. So every time one of these guys came out, I was like, is that Fabio? And I was and like, no, have you not seen Fabio? No, I have. I have seen <laughs> Fabio, but like, it was just because like you had well, set up like, for me yeah. that Fabio was in this movie. And so these like long haired, like, you know, beautiful looking men come out and, and I'm like, like, no, is, is that's this not him? Fabio. Yeah. Where is he? And then, uh, yeah. And then he's just like, he's got like one shot, like near the end. He doesn't have any lines. I, I was just, um. Not that I'm like a big fangirl of Fabio or anything. I'm just like, <laughs> I thought he had more in this movie. So fun fact, Isabella Rossellini, she has a, a body double in this movie for shots where her butt's showing. Yeah. Um, she does full nudity in Blue Velvet, which she did before this. And that's actually her in Blue Velvet. And someone was like, wait, why did why would you do nudity for Blue Velvet, but not for death becomes her and basically it's about whoever is around you yeah i mean that's fair i think the answer she gave at the time was essentially something along the lines of like it wasn't worth doing it for death becomes her <laughs> that's fair that feels like a very uh isabella Rossellini answer mm. but i'm also like she goes on to marry david lynch mm. there's a level of intimacy there beyond what she has with robert zemeckis even like just on a, not like a physically intimacy, but like you clearly emotionally trust that person more sure. than Zemeckis. And that's not to say anything bad about Zemeckis, but it just means that like, just because you do nudity in one doesn't mean you do nudity in the other. For sure. I can totally see why the gays love this movie. Um, you got, oh, yes. You got all the cattiness, right? It's got the same kind of like bitchy rivalry thing that what happened to baby Jane has which gays also love and I, then i think like the big thing is that the two women then like team up mm -hmm. um even though they they clearly still kind of hate each other right at the end of the movie and so i think like that arc and especially like the way at the end because they don't have Ernest to like perfectly make them up heck even when Ernest like perfectly makes them up their makeup's like a little much yeah. Which is well, like because like when you see a mortician go to work, like it's always going to look a little bit too much because they have to compensate for so much. Yeah, and like at a open casket funeral, you're just gonna see that face for like three seconds, right? It's yeah. not something you walk around with all the time. So they're they're painted up a little ridiculously, but like they look like people. When we see how it looks when they've had to do it for themselves, that's where I'm like, okay, here's where the drag is coming in like just the big stenciled on eyelashes and eyebrows and stuff well i think that that element of like the makeup and everything is throughout the movie mm, sure um yeah it's it's the camp the over-the-top cattiness the excessiveness 
of the things that are going on and the the overall makeup and drag of just like oh i need to like make sure this is perfect Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily about like oh well drag queens just obviously are like worried about looking old it's like no i need to make sure that this eyeliner is in exactly the right spot and just being like hyper focused on the very minute details of makeup specifically but you know the other thing about drag queens like specifically like the the performance of drag yeah not just meaning drag is like a man in woman's clothing or some kind of cross-dressing but like the specific sort of performance art that drag is is almost about like portraying an exaggeration yeah of womanhood exactly right and so with with the characters in this movie like being so obsessed with like being a sexy woman like they are themselves portraying an exaggeration of womanhood right and yeah. so that's where i think that all kind of clicks in so yeah it's it's really obvious watching this like if if you know i watched it and then you told me that like gays love this movie i would be like yeah of course i think also so context here one of the first gifts of this movie that i saw that i was like oh, this is Death Becomes Her, I should check that out, Mm. was, uh, I believe it was was on Tumblr, and it was someone talking about themselves, like, coming out as trans to themselves, or, like, seeing themselves in the mirror right after, like, having um, breast implants or something like that. And uh, they used a gif of um, Meryl Streep in the mirror, suddenly having boobs and a butt again, spinning around and being like, I'm a girl! (laughs) Um, and then of course there's the doorman who like shushes her, like yeah, yeah. keep it a secret. Like that whole part was right. the gift that was used. Uh, so I think there's elements throughout all of it, not just in drag, but in the broader queer experience. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's that, um, applicability, yes. right. That we talked about with like nightmare before Christmas, um, where it's, it, it can be very like applicable to things and speak to people in these ways. Even if it's not about the queer experience no. at all no. in, in in any shape or form no and in, in fact even the thing that it is about which is like the way that our culture forces women to become like obsessed with like retaining youth and beauty and all this kind of stuff in a very like unfair way and the way that people's like careers are affected by it and so on that satire sort of like falls away at a certain point when the movie just decides it's like much more interested in kind of just like the gruesome fun of like how many ways can we like kill Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and have them be like walking around with like broken necks and holes in them (laughs) and stuff like it it gets much more interested in like the cartoony goofy uh, gruesome horror black comedy stuff and the satire thing kind of like Falls away. Falls away. Like, because if it was really like a pointed satire, you know, the the ultimate bad guy of this movie, like, should be like Liesel, like the one peddling the potion. But like, that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I think that satirical element probably would be stronger had we kept some of those scenes, like with Madeline and her agent, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, just like elements like that. But at the end of the day, that's also like, I'm not here to see like a straight laced up satire about beauty standards. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, 
the movie still manages to have its very like heavy handed tales from the crypt moral with that like funeral scene at the end where yes. he's like, you know, and, and he achieved true eternal youth and immortality because of his children and how his legacy will live on. And this is true immortality and so on. Right. Hugh Meryl Streep going blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, which also feels very like <laughs> gay because it's like, oh yeah, procreation, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just very good. I very much enjoyed this movie. I'm glad. It's not like shooting up to become a fave of mine, but yeah, it's not bad. It was a fun watch. It was good. The dark humor worked for me. Um, yeah, just like a fun time. Yeah. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode on Death Becomes Her from 1992. This has been one of our horror adjacent bonus episodes that we do once a month. If you would like to vote on the next one, uh, February's, by the time you listen to this, February's will have been chosen. Uh, but if you head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, you can vote for March's bonus episode. Yeah, it, it seems pretty clear what we're doing in February, right? Yeah, it was an option of uh, shorts, and it is pretty clear that Hair Raising Hair, the first appearance of Gossamer in uh, the Looney Tunes cartoons, um, has been chosen. So we will cover that for February. That should be fun. Yes. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.